Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. I really believe that if we design in status quo ways, we're going to create status quo outcomes. Welcome back to episode 17 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Tanya Anaisi. Tanya is the founder of Betna Design, an equity design studio supporting social sector leaders to translate their equity values into action. She is a founding creator of Liberatory Design, a new practice of human-centered design that drives innovation towards liberation. Liberatory Design has a three-part approach, modes, mindsets, and tools. So I bet you can already imagine why I was so excited to talk to Tanya. Tanya and I dive into the importance of intentionality and reflection when it comes to designing a project or even finding new partnerships. While it's really hard to think, observe, and design in new ways, using frameworks like liberatory design is critical if we want to create change outside of the status quo in big ways. We also talk about self-care and the importance of time and space for ourselves and our staff. As you guys know, this work is hard, and we talk about our own capacity when we go through too much change all at once, and how we take care of ourselves when we feel the constant pressure to make the world a better place. It's a lot to hold and handle, especially when we feel a real sense of urgency around the issues we're tackling, but we have to sustain ourselves too. Okay, I could go on and on, but instead, let's just go meet Tanya. All right. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Tanya Anaisi. Tanya, thank you for joining us. When I first learned about your work, I was really just like blown away and sat with your website for a while, just learning and absorbing. And so I'm so grateful um, that you're spending this time with us today. Why don't we start with you just introducing yourself, sharing a little bit about your background and what's bringing you to this conversation? Great. Thanks for having me. What to say? Well, I came to this work. I studied design and design thinking in particular and engineering, which was centered on how do we innovate in a way that supports human needs better? So how do we do better for people? That was my passion in the field that I came from and then started Betna Design. I'm the founder and CEO sort of unofficially in 2016 to figure out what we were doing and then officially in 2018 when we could say with some clarity, this is what we're about. And tell us a little bit about the premise or like the underlying framework of your work. Yes. So the methodology we use is called liberatory design. And I co-created it with four other people, Susie, David, Tom, and Victor. And 
The concept is, I come from the world of design thinking. It's also called human-centered design. It's not like, oh, those people are inherently creative and others not. It's based on the belief that everyone is creative, but the way that we work impacts how creative the outcomes are that we create. So design thinking was a methodology to say there are tools, methods, practices to foster creativity, to bring the creativity forward. And so that's originally design thinking where we came from. And liberatory design was asking some questions around what does it mean to be doing innovation work, but with an equity and justice lens? So if we want to be rethinking housing, we have to be able to talk about racial segregation and the history of the current context and the lack of housing for people on the ability spectrum, right? Like, so it's how do we do this innovation work grounded in the reality of what is and taking some of the best practices from social justice movements and how we create change. So that's how liberatory design was created, finding the best of both worlds and then creating something new. So that methodology is the base of most of Vayna Design's offerings. That's how we support clients. Okay, so you started to give some sort of overarching examples what the work might look like, but can you give us something really specific, like either a specific project you've worked on and just sort of show us how this framework like looks applied? Yes, okay. I can give two quick stories. We sort of do two things. Either folks come because they want to be doing equity or justice-rooted work within their organization or we're looking at something that's more external, the people that they support and serve and work with. So a lot of people interested in this work have been social sector, nonprofits, foundations. Now tech is becoming interested in some corporate partners. But some quick examples are in one case, for example, an organization was saying, we want to rethink our culture and how we engage with each other to be more equitable, looking at retention of staff of color, of folks who identify as non-gender binary, like what does it mean for our culture to be more inclusive and equitable? And so we said, we're not interested in giving you a list of recommendations, you know your context, but we will teach you liberatory design in order for you to use the process to come up with your own solutions. So then some of the tenants are, we want you to center the people who are most impacted. So if there's trust and you're able to approach them without causing harm, could you learn from their experience about what is working and what's not working? Then you need to together define what the real challenges are, which are probably not obvious to you when you start the project, and then start to generate lots of different solutions that you can test in a way that's safe to fail, meaning we want to fail to learn, but not at the cost of other people. So in that scenario, for example, there was an organization who was looking at how do we report and navigate conflict? There had been some historical mistrust of HR, of some people involved. There had been some incidents that were not handled particularly well. The organization wasn't prepared. And so it became a question of we have to redesign our system for how do people identify, name, report harm, offer reconciliation. What does that look like? So they designed some policies and systems using the design process. So let's talk to the people who were hurt to then root what we make as an alternative that would better support not only them, but our whole staff. But of course, understanding the most impacted. So that's an example of like, we're going to redo some internal stuff. Another partner that works in the child welfare system had a more targeted approach of how are we impacting youth living in child welfare through our organization? So in that case, they created a council of youth that either currently or just exited the welfare system to help them redesign a very specific product and training offering for adults who work with these youth. So that was very much like we have to do better by the people externally. How do we involve them in shaping what it is? 
was a long explanation. No, it was great. And there actually, there's so many pieces of it that I'm interested in going deeper around and exploring with you. And this is that the tail end part of your process, but I think it's really interesting, which is this idea of testing in a way that allows you to iterate, but isn't causing harm in the process. To me, that seems like maybe it's one of the fundamental differences between just like a design thinking approach versus liberatory design is like really thinking about that piece in a different way. So will you talk to us about that? Yes, totally. But I had seen the National Equity Project with some of the folks that co-created liberatory design with us working at National Equity Project. They still work there. And they had created some questions around what does it mean for something to be safe to fail? And as a designer, it was like, yes, this is what has been missing. It has been very like fail fast, fail early, you know, very Silicon Valley version of design thinking. And so then we took some of those reflection questions, added more and built out a tool. It's basically an exercise for folks to walk through trying to understand what could be unintended consequences, who will benefit the most, who could be the most harmed, what kind of harm are we looking at? Who are the other stakeholders in the system? How might their behavior change? And the reality is you cannot predict all of it. That's the whole point of like unintended consequences. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality of what's lacking in traditional design, in my opinion, is responsibility for what happens after. And then the other question is, do you have protocols for if shit goes down? Excuse my language. (laughs) Like, uh, do you have a dampen plan? For example, if if things are going to go wrong, what's your immediate repair, dampen, shutdown process? And that can get real, whether it's a small thing, a large scale project. I know we were talking to one partner that was experimenting with how they think about leave, parental leave, medical leave. And so we're asking them, okay, you need to test to see if this is going to be impactful for your staff. But then the question is, how can we test a concept of leave if the idea evolves, right? Like, is it ethical to go to staff and say, we're going to try out this new policy XYZ to to get their reactions. And at the end say like, actually, we decided not to go that direction. (laughs) So you get into some real nitty gritty conversations of how would we shift how we learn about this idea in a way that's not going to create harm. And if it does, how do we address it? Wow. You know, what's coming up for me as you're talking about this is just how complicated some of these challenges are that organizations individually and sector wide are trying to face. I feel like we've seen a lot over the last 18 months, a lot of urgent reactionary behavior to things like DEI. But the way that plays out is that they take some urgent action without doing the work that you're talking about. And something I've seen in a number of different organizations is they're not prepared to create safe spaces for the leaders of color in their organization. And so there it ends up being lot of harm created by that situation. And the thing that I really appreciate about your whole process is how much time and intentionality there are in all of the steps before there really is the thing being designed. And I think that's a really concept that challenges a lot of nonprofit leaders, this idea of slowing down. And it's obviously interwoven with a lot of other things we know But can you talk to us about the sort of pillars of this process in your work and why it's so critical that people move through each of them? It's a great point. And I think sometimes, even when design thinking in its original form was first introduced, there was this sort of like, why would we slow down? Like we need it now. And I think it's harder to your point in the social sector because 
the risks, like it really could be life and death for the people we're working with in terms of the urgency of what they need support with, the crisis that's happening. I'm thinking about youth in cages on the border. Like there's a lot of urgency, but it's sort of, it's like the classic human conundrum of like, do we want to do something that's preventative and investing in our values or do we want to do something right now? And I think it's not a total dichotomy. It's not either or. But what people find, I think when they get into the liberatory design practice, it feels a lot better to like, ah, this is working aligned to my values. They feel motivated. They feel excited. They're bringing people in who have, are most impacted by the problem. It's completely shifting how they work. There's a lot of humility around like, oh man, we've been making decisions for people. We have to make it with them. We're going to do our work so much more effectively. So it's sort of the trade-off of like, do you want to be more effective, more rooted in your values, more aligned to what the community is actually asking for? and has priorities in, the outcome is so much better. It does require sort of slowing down. It does. Not sort of. It does. <laughs> Opposed <laughs> to like, we could design a program in three hours by ourselves in a room. The chance that it might fail significantly higher than if we're embedding, we're looking at bias, we're talking about power, we're embedding with people who have, who are going to be most impacted. So what was the original question? When it comes to the different modes of liberatory design, Notice and reflect are at the core, which is noticing things like history, systems of oppression, identity, and reflect, and many things. And reflect is about consistently having a practice of understanding. How is it going? How are we doing? What did I bring to the table today? And so notice and reflect are the core of how we work. We truly believe like if we're trying to build a more liberated future and present, like this is just part of how we work now. We're constantly noticing and reflecting. And then the other modes, it doesn't have to be linear, but the idea is these are liberation rooted practices that'll help you get closer to where you need to be. So that could involve with empathize talking to people. With try, that could be, we talked about the safety fails, like getting your idea out there before it's a $2 million 10-year pilot. Like you need to know early if people are invested and they can help you refine it. So there's a lot of different practices. Each one is going to get you closer and closer to the more equitable outcome that you're seeking. But notice and reflect are sort of like non-negotiable has to happen. Mm. Do you provide tools around the reflection piece, even the noticing piece maybe that helps folks pull out of um, conditioned tendencies or maybe limiting beliefs that they hold or they're like historic and I mean, this is maybe where like unconscious bias comes in. So it's not just about, I'm assuming, thinking about things maybe in the way we are used to, but asking ourselves perhaps some fundamentally different questions. Very true. Yes. Part of the approach of how we work with teams is a lot of what we're doing is work sessions. And sometimes we'll work with teams four or five sessions over the course of a couple of months that are two hours each. And folks are always like, two hours? Whoa. <laughs> and then <laughs> we did some surveys recently being like, you know, too long, too short. What do you think? And they were like, just enough, maybe needs to be longer. Because once they get in there, it's like, oh, this is what we've been waiting to talk about. But you're totally right in terms of what we bring up. We do some intersectional, intersectionality conversations around where, what are the assets that I'm bringing? What are potential biases either that I can see or cannot see at this moment that are going to impact how I view this project, how other people will view me. We start defining the project. We'll look at if there's human behavior we don't understand, what in the system is fostering this behavior? Like folks are making the best choice they can, but sometimes they're just given pretty shitty choices. So why is the system creating these choices? So there's a lot of just like, look under that carpet, look under that rug, like that dusty corner we need to get over there. So we do have some specific questions. I describe it as like bumper lanes or no, it's like monopoly. Like you do not pass go. You can't get through the next phase without sort of reckoning with some of these questions. 
Yeah, I love that. And I just could not agree more with, you know, I feel like so often we see a strategy, this is what we were sort of saying before, right? Like a strategy implemented, but not even the sort of like consciousness around the barriers, the inner external barriers that are involved in the implementation of that strategy. As a fundraising consultant, people are always like, create a fundraising strategy. And I'm like, okay, but I want to talk about your money stories first. <laughs> and I want to talk about all these other things and feel like, oh, I don't want the like mindset fluff. And I'm like, this isn't mindset fluff. This is the core, right? This is everything. If I build you a fundraising strategy that is not aligned with your values, with your ability to talk about money, with how you believe money should be moving through your organization, then I've made you a super pretty document that your board feels good about momentarily, but not something that's going to shift the way you raise money as an organization. It's so real. I really believe that if we design in status quo ways, we're going to create status quo outcomes. And it's exactly to your point. It's like, it hasn't been working so far. Super great. (laughs) There's all these things that we assume are like how we work or what is professional or what is good. They're actually super status quo. And sometimes you have to, to your point, like really tear it back to say, this feels uncomfortable. This feels long. This feels slow, whatever that is, because we're operating in status quo ways. So like if you want to get to door B, You can't keep walking through door A. Like you have to mosey with me over to door B. Trust me. Yeah. And you know what's so interesting though is that, I mean, the idea from my view of the nonprofit sector or who I want the nonprofit sector to be, what I believe is possible in the sector is that the purpose of it is to break the status quo. Like the market determines the status quo. And we are here as an entity, not driven by the same market in order to break the status quo when it is inequitable and unjust. So it becomes then so frustrating for me when we start using status quo frameworks or systems and processes, because it feels so fundamentally the opposite of what we're trying to do. Totally. I think so many folks are in this moment. It's like, I don't want to be in the charity mindset. I don't want to be making decisions for people when I, you know, I was talking to a staff member recently. He's like, I didn't even grow up in the city. And like, I'm at this nonprofit trying to help black and brown students who live in the city. How am I supposed to know? (laughs) A lot of people are feeling that rub. A lot of organizations are just like, we can't keep operating this way. This is not why we got into this work. This is not why nonprofits exist. But there's a whole larger conversation around the nonprofit field that I think you're sparking. But it's uh, a question of like, if we have these resources, we have the staff and this ability, what does it mean to do work that's authentic to our values, but also by the values the community would define? I think a lot of partners reach out with the hope that it would be so rewarding and so aligned to what we're trying to do here if the community identified our work as valuable. But like that's the whole point is this community we believe in and want to support and we know have assets. If they're reflecting back, this is a value, this is how I want it. They're expressing ownership and leadership over what's happening. That's sort of the dream. But then there feels like a big gap between, there's also a tension with funders. I feel like you would know a lot about this. Right? <laughs> Like if we want to work this way with community partners, centering what they need, like that's not going to give us the deadlines, the quote unquote outcomes that the funder wants. It's it's so complicated. I'm curious what you would say. I am working with one funder who has said, we want to see this kind of work happening, this co-ownership and co-design, and we don't think the market rewards it yet. So we want to experiment and start funding it to sort of push the field in this direction. So there are some funders who are kind of what if we give people no restrictions on outcomes, but just a commitment that they're going to do a process of community ownership and power sharing? What happens? 
Anyway, I'm getting very excited, but I'm curious how you feel about that tension. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I'm obviously a fan of unrestricted funding in all the forms. And I recognize the sort of way in which foundation assessment in particular and sort of application processes and gates have historically favored white-led organizations. And so I love the idea of removing barriers in all of those different ways. My hope would be that the staff then goes through really significant anti-racist and unconscious bias training so that more decision-making doesn't become subjective without having done the real work that continues to exclude communities of color. So that's when I think about like what are unintended consequences of things. The other thing I think is that I think when it comes to this work, it's about from a funding perspective, and we we're talking about like the urgency, right? Some of the urgency is both, yes, there are kids in cages at the border, and that is a real urgent thing. That is not like an urgency we have made up in our mind. That is a real urgent thing. And then there's also this whole like urgent sort of structural component being put on us from a funding perspective and this sort of like cyclical year cycle, this like desperation cycle year over year. And I think that is also in a lot of ways driven by foundation culture and grant cycles and single year funding and all of those things that I think we know, like we know that is not the way. We just know it. And I think it's going to take bold leaders inside foundations. I think it's going to take bold leaders and individual giving and sort of like the early adoption to say, yeah, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like to make an investment in a different way, but I am on this like learning with you. And I think that's what true partnership is like. And, you know, when I say to organizations all the time, I'll ask them, it's so interesting. I'll ask them about the strength of their relationship with their funders and they'll rate it really high. And then I'll ask them about talking to their funders about more community centric fundraising principles and like, oh, we can't, we can't bring that up. (laughs) And I'm like, so how are you defining the strength of your relationship with this funder? What does strength in a funder and grantee relationship look like? And what do we want it to look like? And how can we co-create that together? And I think that requires a lot more conversation around power dynamics and so many different things that I think folks are hungry for and certain people are ready to have those conversations. And, And I think this is also an area, you know, I'm a big advocate for kind of the right corporate partnerships, like long-term corporate partnerships, not sponsorship of event type corporate sponsorship, but organizations finding companies that are interested in impacting communities in the same way that they are, which I think 10, 20 years ago, I didn't see what I see today in terms of the rise of companies doing more community-centered work or value-driven work in the way that I think the nonprofit sector has. And I think what's interesting about cross-sector partnerships, when they're right, when they're not you know, value signaling and greenwashing and all those things, but when they're really truly aligned, It's unrestricted funding. And I think it allows the nonprofit to really come to the table with all the value that they have as an organization, all the assets they really have as an organization, and set up a more sustainable funding relationship that actually is a more shifted power dynamic than I think what we see in the foundation world or even in the individual world. Like it's much more partnership driven. I think this is a new phenomenon that I'm excited to watch grow over the coming years, especially as I think businesses or as we watch businesses really shifting in the way that they show up. 
I just had a conversation with someone this morning about this. <laughs> yeah, the, who does some sort of donor advising foundation work. And she was saying the interest from the corporate side has been growing exponentially in the last couple of years in particular. So I'm hearing you on that trend. That's really interesting. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. My hope is that it's something that if nonprofits can stay really grounded in their values and in their alignment, which of course they need to figure out um, beforehand, right? Then they're not going to get yanked around and find themselves in the same sort of historical power dynamics that they have with like foundations. But really to say they need to show up to meetings with corporate partners, really looking for a mutually beneficial partnership and not the companies coming in and asking organizations to do a bunch of volunteer work days that exploit the local community, right? Like we've seen all the ways that this does harm. But I do believe that like there is a real interest in that shifting too. And so I really hope the nonprofit sector takes a strong leadership role and like doing work like what you're asking people to do even before setting up some of those partnerships as well. It's super interesting. It's definitely a question. I know uh, we do work with some foundation partners too. And a lot of them, obviously, by who approaches us, it's like a selected, selected, self-selected <laughs> group, but have been approaching with some of these questions around, we want to shift the dynamic. We want to be centered more in what community identifies as, as goals and assets, et cetera. And there's still so much, it's like such a strong current coming through, right? I was working with one partner, foundation partner, and it was an equity-centered project that someone had set a certain deadline and people were distressed about reaching this deadline and just calls after hours, back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings, meetings getting cut to 15 minutes. It was getting really unbearable. And someone on the team said, hold on, why is this deadline such a hard deadline? And then someone else said, we just made it up and we could move it. And then everyone was just like, what? <laughs> but, you know, especially as the funder yeah. who has so much power in these relationships, they were self-imposing their own right because we need to show XYZ leadership or if there's family foundation that we're being productive, that we're doing work, that our salaries are worth it. There's all this like proof, 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 proof. And to hear that from the funder who has the majority of the power in these relationships, just a reminder how deep this stuff runs. Like talking about the status quo, like we need to prove our productivity when we don't actually have any accountability. And just the fear, right? I think what's so complicated and what I have a lot of empathy for is the fact that like these structural things are often driven by a lot of personal fear, anxiety, stress, emotions, and that have been the structural impact of so many things. And I work particularly with women fundraisers. And I just read this crazy statistic the other day that said 61% of women would rather talk about their own death than money. Oh, what? Isn't that wild? 
Okay. So it's like, you think about that and you're like, okay, that's like a societal structure status quo thing, right? What women were told historically was very inappropriate for them to talk about money and they weren't allowed to. And so that now here they are in the nonprofit sector, 75% of the workforce in the nonprofit sector, primarily being responsible for talking about money in order to fund their organizations. And they would rather be sitting in those meetings talking about their own death like that, right? And so you think about, the personal implications of that in terms of like burnout, exhaustion, all the other things, and then also the sector-wide implications. And it also makes me wonder, and I'm curious what you think about this. Sometimes when I think about folks who are coming up against so many barriers or like trying to smash status quos in so many different areas of their work and life and just how exhausting that is, that sometimes perhaps... It's not that they want to keep a status quo somewhere because they believe in it, but just because they're so tired. That is so real, especially when it's happening all at once. I love like picking up the rock and looking under it of the status quo being like, do I really, what's in there? I don't know if I like that. But there was a particular phase of my life when I was rethinking my own money scripts and how I want to run business and what I believe about productivity and my family relationships and systems of pressure. I did it all at once. And it was exhausting. Like there's already burnout happening. The pandemic we're hearing is amplifying burnout. People are doing 10x more work, but deadlines are getting shorter. Like it's all just, it's a hot mess. And then we're asking people, like I'm thinking in my own personal life, I love constantly reading. You read a book, there's braiding sweetgrass. I have read, it has been months. I've read about 40 pages of this book because every two pages, I just have to sit on the couch and stare at the wall and just, whoa. And so it's really hard when we put this kind of status quo upheaval, one in the context of not giving people any more space, right? Even to do these two-hour coaching sessions I'm talking about, it's like, oh, maybe we can squeeze it in. That's not always the case. I work with some leaders. One organization told staff, you know, you don't have to do meetings on Fridays now because you're doing design work. Like some people are really intentional about making space for it, but it goes against productivity. It goes against, you know, within your worth, all these things that are ingrained in the American version of capitalism, it's hard to ask people to do it all at once. I think that it is what people are hungry for. But to your point, where do we get the processing time to acknowledge I'm changing 30 years of programming right now or whatever that person's age would be? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. And I think that piece around giving folks the space around work like this to just like process. I ran a community-centric fundraising workshop for an organization. It was like two and a half hours long. And we went into it really unsure of where we were going. Like it was the first conversation to give folks the space to reflect and process and share and it was on Zoom and all these things. And I, afterwards, I like couldn't move. I was like the container for that, to hold that container was so intense. I remember saying to my husband, the only other time I've been this tired in my life was after giving birth, which seemed like so crazy to say, but it was really like, and I just like for the rest of the day, I was a zombie. And I was like, gosh, we really, and I just canceled everything on my schedule. And, but, you know, I think it's so true. We're like combining modes of being And as we combine some of these practices or start to bring in some of these maybe unfamiliar practices and organizations, and I think leaders being brave enough to give their staff all the space that's necessary around that, I think is so critical. 
It's so true. It's part of, to be frank, part of the reason I chose to start my own company, many reasons, but I felt like if the status quo is not going to give me the space, I have to make my space. And I still could do a better job to your point of like canceling meetings when you need it. But we take, I think I take about six weeks off a year to be able to be sustainable in this work. And I still consistently feel like I found my sweet spot is four hours of work a day. I can be empathic, curious. I can sit on the couch and have those what the moments. Like it's very, very healthy for me. That's an ideal scenario. I don't work only four to five hours a day. But I hope that for us, I hope for this next evolution of at least in the US, I feel like that's the context I can speak to. I hope there is a movement like on Instagram, the nap ministry. Oh, I get my daily dose of the nap (laughs) ministry (laughs) and just be reminded. I'm like, I hope this is the direction that we're headed and I'll do what I can, you know, within even my small little company in terms of vacation days, we give staff rest, all that stuff. But it's, it's consistently something I want more of and I want Mm. more for our whole society. Yeah. But what that made me think about is, you know, I feel like one of the things that's so hard in any job where you feel emotionally connected to your work, right? Like I, like you are emotionally connected to your work. I'm really emotionally connected to my work. And so sometimes while I feel like I've done a lot of work around boundaries and, you know, self-care things, maybe in the other areas of my life, when I have another organization come to me and I'm full really of like how full I want to be, but I see the work and I, and it's not the money. It's not, oh, I need this. It's like, I know I can work with them and support them in the work that they're doing. And I feel like that for like nonprofit leaders who are listening to this too, right? It's like, the no or the boundary or the space feels like it's always in this constant tension with helping. And helping is such a complicated thing that I've really been dealing with in myself over the last few years around like, am I helping? Am I fixing? Am I partnering? Am I supporting? Where is this? What beliefs is this coming from? Is it that I think I'm the only one who can do this? And I write like all the unconscious bias and all the things. And so I think that's important. Totally. And sometimes we really find ourselves where it never feels easy to say, no to an opportunity that is so aligned with our values and what we want to see in the world around us. How do you deal with that? Oh, it's really resonating. I'll say everything that you've shared. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't have a great answer. I would say, I mean, part of the thing is we're growing. So I'm bringing on more staff and starting to say to your point, like, I don't have to be the one that does this. Like people can bring different assets that I would not have. We have the methodology that people can very easily take on. So part of it is just to grow and to offboard for the first time this fall, there will be projects that I'm not on or that I'm not leading, which I'm excited about. That's part of it. But then another piece, yeah, is something I keep hearing from my mentors. And even when I'm reading people that I really admire, it's just this constant reminder of like, okay, there was injustice yesterday. There will be injustice tomorrow. There will be injustice the day you take your last breath. It doesn't mean to chill and not do anything about it, but it means, I think, A spiritual teacher actually helped me reckon with this. To your point, she's very blunt, bless her, I needed to hear it, was really like, who do you think you are to think that you're going to solve this? You're going to save them. You you are going to defeat racism, Tanya. Right? She's like, take a step back. You're contributing to generations of movement building. 
that's lovely. It's rewarding. But at the same time, I think this idea of it's all on our shoulders, you didn't say this at all. I'm speaking for myself, how I used to feel. It's like, it's all on my shoulders. I need to do this. I need to help. I need to work this amount. It was sort of a little bit egocentric, right? She describes the distinction between righteous and self-righteous. Righteous anger is very healthy. It's like, this is not acceptable. I will not, like, this is outside of my values. I don't believe in this. I'm going to do something about it. But self-righteous is like, I need to, people need my help. Let me tell them how to do it. It's very exhausting. It'll burn you out very quickly. It's where a lot of people who are pushing for equity within the organizations fall into that place because they feel alone. They feel like no one's listening. I try to pull myself back into the righteous anger, which is like, I care deeply about this. And the way that I say sustainable is saying no. It doesn't make it easier. I pace around my house. It's like, I know in my gut, I've journaled about it. I have to say no to these clients. We don't have capacity, you know, whatever's going on, it's, it's going to push us over the edge, but it still is like nails on the chalkboard. But I've gotten to the point where we can say, it's also just been enough time for me to trust in abundance. Like things don't work out and more work comes and more work comes, knock on wood. Very grateful. So I've started to learn too, to trust that like, for whatever reason, this isn't the right thing right now. It's not on me to save them. There are other people who can do good work with them. I can refer them. I'm making it sound really easy. It's super not easy, but. (laughs) No, I mean, I just think life is just full of so many moments of wanting both things, right? It's like, I want rest and spaciousness and I want to do good work. And, you know, I think for me, I mean, certainly I've, had to do my own kind of like ego work over the years. And I come from, you know, my mom was a first generation American. My family's from Hungary. My grandma was in the Holocaust. And then they were displaced in Holland after that and came to the US. And they were supported by so many social services along the way to like give me the life that I had. And I grew up with a lot of really traumatic stories. And stories of people saving, like my aunt and her family got out before my grandma was taken. And just these stories that I think they play such a role and that I think we don't always look at. The big thing I had to look at was like, is my constant saying yes, because that allows me to not address my own trauma around my family. Because if I stay in the helper role, then maybe I'm not vulnerable or I'm just dealing with right this anxiety around what ifs kind of. And I think like what I so appreciate about you and your work is I think you're asking people to do that in ways that I haven't seen before, both individually and collectively, that also feels like solution oriented. Like you really have created this sort of new model of looking at problem solving that I think is so unique and allows folks to tap into their individual empathy while keeping all these other things. You know, it's hard to look at our own stuff and it's really scary and it's really hard to do it, especially in moments like we were saying before, where there are all these other pressures or we're exhausted or we're burnt out. And so just for folks who are listening to this to really give my word of the year has just been grace. And whether that's grace because I like hit another big wall because I did say yes to way too many things instead of beating myself up and being like, you should have known that because you knew you couldn't take one. But like having grace then and just like in all the ways, because as we navigate and try to show up differently, all of us gets tested. So, so true. It's so true. And I've also noticed when I'm burnt out, so my boundaries are the worst. You would think like, oh, I'm overworked and I have too many clients. That's when I take on more clients. It's like, what? (laughs) 
Mm. It's when grace is most essential. It's like, oh, because it takes energy to have boundaries and you didn't have any. Grace is, I love grace. I'm constantly working on it. It's just, someone said to me, they're like, this is a lifelong cycle. Stop getting upset that you do it. Just know that you love humans. You love doing this work. You will overcommit and then you'll have to backtrack. Kind of sucks, but like, that's who you are. Wow. I love that. Oh my gosh. I love that. I'm going to steal that little self mantra. I'm curious, what has been the biggest surprise to you as you have done this work over the last few years? I think I've been surprised by, I consistently have a habit of thinking that everybody else has it figured out and I'm making things up on the fly. And the more I've gotten into this work, like sometimes I'll look at a proposal and be like, wow, I don't know, can we do that? And then we get in there, I'm like, oh, these people are real humans with real feelings. And, oh, this is a problem that we can work on together. And we don't have to, I don't have to know the answers there. We're going to work with community members. I think I'm consistently surprised by the fact that the work is emergent. That seems so obvious, but I think my school child trained brain is still expecting there to be the magic equation or the set of answers. And I just keep reading books and I keep going to training and I keep talking to peers. And it's just sort of like, okay, we're all figuring it out. Because we were all trained in status quo. We're trying to unravel it like generations did before us. We can learn from them, but we're sort of like to build a new future. You can't, there is no copy paste because it doesn't exist yet. Yeah. And it brings up for me, I did a podcast interview with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who wrote How Motions Are Made. And she talks a lot about the predictions, the reason why we predict our emotions in order to essentially conserve our metabolic energy. And she's like, you know, we only have a certain amount of metabolic energy. And when we're in situations of uncertainty and our brain cannot predict what's going to happen, we actually, that's what we get an increase in arousal. That's what we interpret as anxiety and stress and all these things. And so she's like, we do everything we can as humans to prevent that. And so I think about what the intersection is of that, which is scientific, biological stuff. And then what does that mean then for how we can support ourselves and support other leaders where their every day is naturally going to be unknown? Because if we are trying to break the status quo, that is just our, the truth. And so then how do we support leaders to be able to operate in this heightened arousal state, perhaps? but without activating all of our nervous systems in a way that does burn us out. And what is the relationship? I mean, it's such a big question that of course I'm bringing up at the very end of this. (laughs) But that's just something I feel like I'm really grappling with right now. It's like, okay, if we know this to be true and we know that our emotions impact how we show up and the actions that we take and what we do, then how can we support each other and the system to like, have it be a both and situation. I love that question. I feel like I'll be trying to figure my version of that out for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Okay. Before we go, will you tell us all the ways that folks can find you? And then I love to invite every guest to share a nonprofit that they love for people to go check them out and give if they can. Oh, that's so rad. Okay. (laughs) So we have Instagram and a website. That's where we live. I'm not great at Twitter or Facebook. You can find me there. I won't be very chatty. (laughs) But Instagram is Beitna, B-E-Y-T-N-A, design. Same for our website, BeitnaDesign.com. And a nonprofit I'm excited about is called Justice Funders. 
They're in Oakland and they are really rethinking philanthropy and experimenting and working with philanthropy partners to reimagine what a justice-oriented future of giving looks like. I'm a big fan. Me too. Me too. Go check them out. And thank you so much for having this conversation and spending this time with us today. What a treat. Thank you for having me. Okay, there is so much to digest as Tanya opens our eyes to an entirely new design thinking framework. My brain is still buzzing from this conversation. The process modes that Tanya teaches, notice, reflect, see the system, empathize, design, inquire, imagine, prototype, and try, I'm going to start bringing these and more consciousness around them into everything that I do. I know there was a lot in today's episode, and you're probably like, what's new, Mallory? But that's why we put all the detailed show notes on malloryerickson.com backslash podcast. You'll find more information there about Tanya's incredible work, as well as how to connect with her. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review or share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.